0: Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we're glad to have you with us today. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Band of Brothers series, which chronicles the World War II history of the 101st Airborne Division as they fought against tyranny in Europe. Today's story, Devil Dogs, from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan by Saul David, chronicles the bitter struggle of K Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, From the first ground battle in the Pacific, with the Japanese at Guadalcanal in 1942, to the bitter fighting in Okinawa in 1945, four years of the toughest fighting in World War II, under the worst possible conditions. Author Saul David has written a masterpiece here, drawing from the accounts of K Company veterans and others in the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, to place you, the reader, in the middle of the fighting, as well as give you a seat in the Pacific Command Centers. I'll never forget a lister who told me, I know a lot about the European front because a lot's been written and filmed, but not much about the war in the Pacific. And he thanked me for some of the episodes we've done covering the Philippines, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, and others at 1001 Heroes. There's no doubt the story of the war in the Pacific needs to be told. It's a story of courage, deadly fighting in jungles and on coral outcrops, and a series of deadly naval battles. For fans of Eugene Sledges, author of The Old Breed. This story, Devil Dogs, deserves your attention and is the best chronicle of World War II Marine action from the men who were there that I've ever read. Saul David is the author of a number of great books. He lives outside of Bath, England, and he's a professor of military history at the University of Buckingham. Saul, it's great to have you with us today on this day, Veterans Day 2022, and we're very honored to have you with us.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, John, and thanks for that generous uh, introduction.
0: So please tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to take on this challenge. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, took a tremendous amount of research, must have taken you years.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, I was very fortunate, actually, uh, to be able to gather a lot of the material for this book while I was working on a, I suppose you could call it a sister title, and that was Crucible of Hell, which is the story The big story, not just following a small unit, but the whole story from the Japanese and American side of the Battle of Okinawa, which, of course, is the last big battle of the Pacific. Although the participants didn't realize that, and I think that's quite significant, particularly the attitude of the Devil Dogs when we get uh, towards the end of the story. But nevertheless, while I was working on that book, I thought to myself, "Okay, this is the end game, but how did the Marines get here?" I was I was very much struck by the. uh, the memories of some of the Marines, that their unit had been there right at the beginning and were right at the end. And uh, so I was particularly looking for one of the units that had gone in first at the start, Guadalcanal, as you mentioned, John, the first US ground offensive of the Second World War. Um, and there were elements of the fifth Marines that had gone in and and I thought to myself, well, just as Band of Brothers had followed a single company, it would be fascinating and very intimate to follow a small unit, a company of US Marines who've been there at the beginning and were there at the end. And K Company I eventually plumped for, although some of the stories of K Company are reasonably well known because of Eugene Sledge, as you mentioned, John. Uh, The first part of the story is less well known. That's the Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester, uh, which was on the island of New Britain. And so it was piecing together the different elements And somehow showing the continuity. You know, you get to know some of these guys. Not all of them are going to come through. You get to know their wives and girlfriends and some of the letters home that they were writing. And you begin to realize that the story of the Marines in the Second World War is the story of all of Americans, really, because these guys came from across the United States, from all different social backgrounds. Uh, some dirt poor, some were college boys, some were quite wealthy. Uh, But of course, they all had one thing in common, ultimately, John, and that was the commonality of suffering, what they actually went through as a brutal, brutal campaign. I've written about war uh, from ancient times to modern times, and I haven't come across anything uh, in my experience that can compare to the savagery uh, of the fighting in the Pacific. And And I think it's important at a time when um, Europe is experiencing war on its eastern frontiers that we understand the consequences of sending young men into combat.
0: I'm going to start with an excerpt from your book so our listeners can get the feel for how you write. Your style is great, it brings you right in. This starts right off of chapter one, which is titled, I Would Have Followed Him Anywhere, Southwest Pacific, August 6th, 1942. As night fell on the 6th of August, 1942, the officers assembled in the wardroom of the amphibious assault ship USS Fuller for a final briefing by the commander of the 3-5 Marines. Lieutenant Colonel Frederick C. B. Bush. We know from intelligence, he told them, that when we hit the beaches tomorrow, we'll run into heavy artillery, machine gun and rifle fire, barbed wire and land mines. Very frankly, the estimate is that nobody who lands in that first wave will come out of it alive. Now it's up to you whether you want to tell your platoons this or you want to keep it to yourselves. Among the listeners was Arthur L. Scoop Adams, a 24-year-old second lieutenant from Beacon, New York, who had joined the U.S. Marines after graduating from Colgate University in the summer of 1940. An aspiring journalist, he had acquired his nickname Scoop while working on his college newspaper. He wasn't a big guy, noted one of his men, only about 5'10 and 165 pounds but there was something athletic about the way he moved, and he was always on the alert. I'd admired him ever since I first met him back at New River in North Carolina. Even after he chewed me out good, and rightfully so, for coming back early from a patrol, I still admired him. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I would have followed him anywhere. What did Scoop end up telling his men?
1: Well, Scoop basically says, listen guys, uh, it's going to be tough, and if any of you want to bug out at this point, that's fine by me. I mean, extraordinary. uh, uh, Leading by example, he was going to be there. He didn't want to take anyone with him who didn't want to be there. And you won't be surprised to hear, John, that not a single uh, one of them put up his hand and said, I don't want to go in. So they all go in together. And the last comment by one of them is, let's go get them Japs. Um, You know, they were up for the fight. But what they experienced when they got to Guadalcanal was going to be quite a shock.
0: Can you kind of take our listeners into Guadalcanal? Tell me what happened. That was their first land battle with the Japanese. What were they expecting and what actually happened there?
1: Well, Guadalcanal was was a poorly planned and a very hastily planned campaign. Uh, we have to look at the context of the war at this stage. The Japanese had had an awful lot of success. They would turfed the, uh, the Americans out of the Philippines or the British out of Malaya. They captured Singapore and they would had an unbroken run of success stopped only by the uh, the seminal battle of midway which took place in june 1942 when uh, you know a close run thing that battle because the uh, the american navy was actually outgunned at midway but fortunately thanks to intelligence it got the upper hand in that battle managed to sink four of the uh, japanese aircraft carriers to just a single u.s aircraft carrier and this is the beginning of the turning of the tide but there's no question that the japanese still had the upper hand uh, in terms of their drive down towards Australia. And there was a very real uh, likelihood that they were going to get to Australia. So the campaign at Guadalcanal, which is an island quite close to the uh, New Guinea uh, island, which of course itself is close to Australia, was an attempt to stem the tide. The uh, intention was to get their hands, that is, the American troops who were going to land there, the 1st Marine Division, including the Devil Dogs, on The airfield, and this, generally speaking, was the was the sort of strategic approach. You capture the island, take the airfield, uh, and that's going to allow you to push the Japanese back. But uh, they didn't really know exactly how many Japanese were there. They certainly didn't know much about the conditions on the island in terms of what it was going to be like physically for the troops to fight there, and uh, they didn't know exactly, if truth be told, what the likely opposition in terms of the Japanese navy was going to be. So. The landing initially, uh, John, went pretty well in the sense that it was unopposed and they effectively caught the Japanese by surprise. But within a couple of days, uh, the situation had turned very nasty for the American troops, the American Marines on Guadalcanal, for the very good reason that the Japanese won this night naval battle. And as a result of the loss of four cruisers, one Australian, interestingly enough, and three US Navy cruisers, the decision was taken to withdraw the uh, warships supporting the landings at Guadalcanal and also the supply ship so very quickly the guys who'd landed on Guadalcanal including the Devil Dogs were pretty much marooned without enough supplies without enough ammunition and pitched into a a brutal fight for survival against a very formidable foe
0: Guadalcanal was uh, fortified extremely extremely well by the Japanese and they were just waiting uh, for the Allies, for the Americans to get into the right position so they could take them out. And the mission for the Allies was to take uh, Henderson Field. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, Henderson Field. I mean, they renamed it Henderson Field, actually. Um, uh, it was an airfield in the midst of construction by the Japanese. It hadn't actually been finished, interesting enough. And the uh, the Americans then bring in uh, the CBs, the construction troops to completed as quickly as possible and literally in just a couple of weeks they managed to achieve that and this is a big turning point in the campaign because it enables fighters and ground attack aircraft to be actually based on the island nevertheless uh, what we have really got on Guadalcanal is a race against time because can the Americans get enough reinforcements onto the island before the Japanese do the same and and literally turf the, uh, the invading Americans off the island. What you've got it, it, it seemed at the beginning that it was going to be a landing and then it was going to be assault on the Japanese positions. What you actually got is the Americans defending the airfield for a large period of that campaign and a number of very vicious assaults on the defensive perimeter that almost broke through. So it was a really close run thing in that battle. And of course, the Devil Dogs, uh, when, when we say the Devil Dogs and, and a company of Marines, we're talking about 200 uh, soldiers, officers and men uh, and the Devil Dogs play their part in that defense.
0: At the beginning of the war there in 1942, being that this was their first island invasion, it seems that the Marines were in many ways unprepared and didn't have the type of supplies they needed. For instance, they were using uh, Springfield rifles. What single-shot bolt-action carbines were, were they not? Uh, they hadn't yet uh, graduated to the M1s. And their landing boats were, were plywood, Higgins boats. This was to change over the next couple years as their island campaign moved on, but they really went into Guadalcanal facing a lot of dis- disadvantages.
1: Yeah, very basic stuff. They hadn't even uh, packed the kit in the right order so that it was, you know, in the first few days of Guadalcanal, equipment was all over the place, really. And as I say, uh, John, they didn't really have enough anyway. They, they'd they reckoned that they'd only been able to take a certain number of uh, units of ammunition per soldier, and it simply wasn't enough. They were going to need re- need to be resupplied, and this is going to take time. Meanwhile, the soldiers are not only facing the formidable foe that I've already mentioned, they're up against the uh, the conditions on the island. I mean, this is a tropical island with some yeah, effectively jungle terrain. And on top of the, uh, you know, the really bad weather, a lot of rain, very damp, difficult to get any sleep. You know, they're almost in constant combat. And slowly but surely, people are going down with some pretty serious illnesses, the main one of which, of course, was malaria but also uh, dysentery and jungle sores and other things. And, and the campaign slowly takes its toll. Of course, you get the, the natural wastage in combat against the Japanese, but you also get an awful lot of people coming out of the line with illnesses. Um, and by the end of the campaign itself, I mean, they're in a pretty bad state. Most of the guys have lost about a third of their body weight. And given that they went in pretty lean to begin with, I mean, these are tough, heavily trained Marine soldiers. You know, they go through brutal training to even get to the point where they're sent into combat, um, you know, they've lost an awful lot of their body weight and they are nodding good nick by the end.
0: Explain what happened with Getke's patrol.
1: Well, Getke's patrol happens very early on. And uh, it's one of these extraordinary miscalculations by Getke, who was uh, chief of intelligence, in fact, for the U.S. Marine Division. So when you think that the chief of intelligence is actually leading a patrol behind enemy lines, you, you imme- immediately, that tells me, John, having, you know, studied a lot of, Uh, action uh, across the ages of warfare, that this was a pretty ill-planned operation. And he had other intelligence
0: men with him, right? I mean, this was a whole whole cadre of them.
1: He basically had most of the key intelligence people from both the headquarters of the 1st Marine Division and also the 5th Marines, uh, part of which, of course, the devil dogs uh, were. And uh, it was an incredibly risky operation. Now, he had bad intelligence, which told him that the Japanese were looking to surrender. And he thought it would just be, you know, stroll up the beach and and take a few white flags. Well, of course, the exact opposite happened. They were waiting for him. He was ambushed. And I think what's particularly grim about that patrol is the Japanese wanted to send out a signal to the invading Americans that uh, this is how they were going to be dealt with. So they weren't content with just killing the patrol. They then cut it to pieces, literally butchered it and left the body parts strewn along the beach, almost as a warning to the other Marines. And and K Company, the Devil Dogs, were some of the first people who came across the remnants of, of this patrol. And they vowed at that point, John, that they would give no quarter, frankly, for the rest of the campaign. All of a sudden, the reality of warfare against the Japanese was clear to them.
0: Yeah, and I think that that definitely fortified their conscience as to what their job was and what they were going to do and how they were going to handle any anybody who surrendered. They weren't going to find many Japanese soldiers surrendering anyway. That wasn't their code.
1: That's right. I mean, the Bushido code, uh, the code of the warrior meant that it was a dishonorable act to surrender. Uh, Certainly commanders were expected to commit suicide instead of surrendering. and And most of the men were expected to fight to the death, which indeed they did. It was incredibly dangerous to take uh, Japanese soldiers prisoner in the Second World War in the Pacific for the very good reason that even those wounded and literally on their last legs would still fight, would still explode grenades and would still fire weapons. There are multiple examples of this. And the end result of all of that is that American servicemen generally and Marines in particular were very wary about taking prisoners with good reason.
0: Can you give us a name of some of the Marines who left some of the best written records who began with Guadalcanal? And then stayed through some of the other island campaigns. As I understand it from what you wrote, there were four major island campaigns, and no one served in all four. Some served in three, if I get it right. But can you give us some of those names and introduce us to those people?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I, I would say there are, as you as you suggest, John, there are four key players in in the story of the book. Um, two of them start off in Guadalcanal. Uh, one of them comes in in Cape Gloucester, and then the fourth one arrives fourth one best known we'll come to him in a second arrives uh, uh just before Peleliu and fights in the final two campaigns well the first uh, first and most interesting one in my view is a guy called sergeant thurman miller he's just 23 at the time of the invasion of guadalcanal um he comes from west uh from west virginia he comes from west virginia or appalachia uh, and from a dirt poor background he's one of 16 siblings he's brought up in grinding poverty uh literally almost without shoes, you know, no running water at home, really basic conditions. But of course, what this does, John, is it hardens him. We're not just talking about people fired from the experience of of the Depression. And a lot of the Marines were from those sort of backgrounds. This is a guy who came from a dirt poor family. Forget about the Depression anyway. He was incredibly tough, as a lot of people from the Appalachians are. They make very good soldiers for that very reason. Uh, And what I found particularly interesting about him is that he wasn't schooled uh, to any great level he wasn't a great intellect but he had a he had a natural sensitivity to his fellow man although he became a very tough and very capable soldier he's a sergeant at the beginning of, of the Guadalcanal he's a sergeant at the beginning of the Guadal Canal campaign and that sensitivity allows him to write uh, with, with great expression um, he wrote a, a wonderful book called Earned in Blood Uh, which was published many years after after the campaign. And he goes in great detail about not only Guadalcanal, but also the follow up in New Britain. Uh, And then and most interestingly, I think how terrible he felt at actually leaving. Now, you you may have thought he'd done his bit. He deserved to go home, which, of course, he did. Uh, And he felt he was asked to stay on. He would have actually uh, been top sergeant. A top kick in the company if it stayed on. But he chose not to because he felt his time was running out. He felt the sands of, you know, he felt his luck was running out and he probably was going to die on Peleliu. And I have to say, and, and I think you might agree with me, John, having read the accounts of one, what went on on Peleliu, it was probably a sensible decision. But he could never really forgive himself for making that decision. And that shows you how tightly the bonds uh, that they had forged among themselves, the brotherhood they had forged uh, up to that point, This experience of combat, the sort of searing experience of combat, uh, meant that he was very loath to leave his fellow soldiers, particularly the less experienced ones who, of course, he was effectively a mentor for. Then you come on to another interesting character, Sergeant McHenry, very different background, came from New York, South South Brooklyn, a sort of Irish background in South Brooklyn. And McHenry uh, was, you know, a bit more of a streetwise character, I suppose you could say it but a no less effective soldier. And McHenry also wrote a, a very good book about three campaigns. I mean, what's wonderful about him is he spans the first three campaigns. He goes all the way through to Peleliu. Uh, and he, again, gives this wonderfully sort of sensitive account. I mean, I, I was astonishingly lucky uh, in the choice. I mean, it wasn't a coincidence. I knew there were these, these very good first-hand accounts, but I was astonishingly lucky in the quality of these memoirs. I've read and used in many of my books, Multiple memoirs, first-hand accounts, but these are really outstanding. And McHenry is another very interesting character. What I loved about the story, of, or retelling the story of K Company, is how many of the accounts are from enlisted men. Generally speaking, John, when you get good, well-written accounts, they tend to come from officers because they're more from a more educated background. But K Company was different, and we've got these two. Then we've got, then we've got Bergen, Jim. Uh, then we've got R.V. Bergen, uh, who's uh, from Texas. Uh, He comes from a farming background in Texas. He enters the story in New Britain and goes on all the way through to Okinawa. So we're now getting a bridging from these characters. Uh, Some of them serve together for two campaigns uh, and some of them will go all the way to the end. The last, of course, of the quartet and the best known is Eugene Sledge. We've already mentioned him. He's written arguably, in my view, one of the greatest war memoirs of all time and certainly of the Pacific uh, with the old breed. And again, it's an extraordinarily sort of revealing, unflinching and honest account of what it was like to be an enlisted man in combat. He joins the mortar platoon um, shortly before the Peleliu campaign and goes all the way through to the end of Okinawa, completely unwounded. Uh, and it was very unusual to to survive those two campaigns. Uh, this, I give the statistics in the book, of, you know, roughly how many men, survive by the end, that it's not many. They take uh, horrific casualties in K Company, as indeed all the, all the frontline marine units do.
0: I'm going to read uh, the beginning of Chapter 7, where you've got a Jim McHenry quote here. By beating off the Japanese attacks on the eastern, southern, and western perimeters of their fragile Guadalcanal beachhead, between August 21 and September 14, 1942, the men of the old breed had shown they were a match for anything their opponents could throw at them. As Jim McHenry wrote, Before those battles, our mental state hadn't been too good. We didn't know if we could trust ourselves or not. But what happened at Tenaru and the Ridge gave us a hefty shot of self-confidence. After those battles, the Japs knew they couldn't make us break and run with their bonsai charge in the middle of the night. At first, the arrogant bastards didn't think we'd stand and fight. They thought we were a bunch of pushovers. Now they knew better, and so did we. What did the Japanese learn? at Guadalcanal how did they have to change their t- tactics and how did they uh, and were they surprised by the tenacity of the marines
1: i think they were very surprised actually they they absolutely had this conviction that the americans the british the western uh, troops generally speaking were not their match they they were spiritually superior they would uh, they were prepared to take more pain and inflict more pain they felt the western they felt they felt their western opponents were soft frankly Uh, But they had a hell of a shock at at Guadalcanal. I mean, the beginning of the Guadalcanal campaign, they're fighting entirely uh, U.S. Marines. And uh, while, of course, U.S. Army troops do very well in the Pacific, and this is not, uh, you know, this is not me doing them down in any sense. uh, The U.S. Marines are shock troops designed uh, to capture beachheads. Uh, They are harshly trained, as I've already explained. They are Excellent physical specimens and and they were some of the best troops frankly that the Japanese could have come up up against but I still feel and you get a sense from some of the Japanese sources that they were surprised at how good and and how tough the Americans were and how quickly they adapted to the conditions because let's face it these guys are coming from communities all across the United States. Yes, they might come from some tough backgrounds uh, like Thurman Miller, but nevertheless, they haven't experienced this type of jungle warfare before this type of warfare that the Japanese felt that they were, you know, the world's uh, best at, uh, and and they were undoubtedly shaken by the experience. The end of the Guadalcanal campaign where the Japanese resistance, where the Japanese resistance is finally broken. And we're talking 30,000 Japanese dead in that campaign. That's not just ground troops, but also naval and air troops. They suddenly realized that they've got a hell of a fight on their hands. Um, Do they, concede defeat at that stage? No, of course they don't. And they, they go on fighting tena- tenaciously right up until uh, 1945. But they suddenly realize they've got a fight on their hands against a, a, a very serious opponent.
0: One of the great things you do about this book is you were with K Company and then you take a, and then we go then we soar upward and we take a look at the whole situation. So we're not only looking at K Company, but we're looking at what's going on in the Pacific surrounding these islands as well. What is going on at this time? Uh, in 1942. And what is the situation with regard to our Navy versus the Japanese Imperial Navy?
1: Well, the overall strategy for the Americans was to push back the Japanese advance. The question is, how are you going to do it? Well, in the end, they, they effectively it is complicated. And there was much many twists and turns before they finally agreed on the ultimate strategy. But in very general terms the idea was uh, a two axis advance. Now, one axis is going to come up from Australia through New Guinea and some of the neighboring islands and on into Philippines. And that's really going to be chiefly a U.S. Army-led op- operation. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the Devil Dogs are loaned to the U.S. Army, or at least they are loaned to MacArthur's uh, command some of the campaigns, uh, and at the same time, there's really a U.S. Navy-led advance on a separate axis of, the, of advance, and that's coming through the Central Pacific, hopping along islands. And, of course, the plan, as I already mentioned, on Guadalcanal is to take these islands both for the anchorages of which the U.S. fleet can advance uh, uh, and use as supply bases, but also to get the airfields. And, and therefore, you, you have this inexorable Movement towards the Japanese home islands. That's the end game. You've got to get to Japan proper. And by 1945, we're moving, uh, jumping ahead in the story a little bit. I know uh, that's where they're getting close to. Hence the uh, the campaign at Okinawa.
0: How many months did Guadalcanal take? Uh, When did we get out? And when did we go into the next? When did the Marines head into the next campaign?
1: Well, Guadalcanal uh, actually goes on until February 1943 when the final Japanese troops uh, uh, abandon their last kind of foothold on the island. But the resistance is really broken by November december 1942 and that's the point at which the first marine division is relieved so by the time they come out at the beginning of december the devil dogs and the rest of the division uh the the worst of the uh, of the japanese resistance has been broken and you know the reason we know it's such a pivotal campaign is because the japanese commander himself says this really broke the spirit of 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 the japanese army um so brutal are or so heavy are the casualties we took. And so shocking was the defeat. I mean, psychologically, for the Japanese to lose a major ground campaign when they had had nothing but success up to that time, that was a big psychological blow. And as I say, they understood the opponent they were up against was was not going to give an inch.
0: We'll return to our interview with Saul David, Devil Dogs, right after these sponsor messages.
2: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: And now back to our story. When the Marines were pulled out of Guadalcanal in November, December 1942, where did they go for R&R? And when did the next campaign start? Was it Melbourne?
1: They initially go to Brisbane in Australia, and uh, they're quite pleased to hear they're going to Australia, particularly a big city, because they think it's, you know, there's going to be some some opportunities for rest and relaxation. Actually, interesting enough, Brisbane at that time was a pretty small town, not like the big uh, city, shiny city it is today. And it's in the tropical part of Australia. So there's a lot of malaria there, a lot of sort of swampy ground round around about the city. And they didn't like it at all. It wasn't to their to their liking. And the senior people in the division very quickly had a word with the U.S. Navy and said, look, is there any chance we can get some transport and get taken further down the south to to Melbourne, which, of course, is a much more temperate area, much better place to the you know, conditions much nicer, frankly. Uh, and also Melbourne was in effect, although it wasn't the capital of Australia at that time, it was the de facto capital. This is the commercial Uh, center of Australia and clearly there were going to be opportunities for uh, enjoying a bit of uh, rest and relaxation and that's exactly what happens John now when the Marines get there they're taken down there in ships they're literally given a ticker tape welcome because the Australians acknowledge that Australia has been saved by what the US Marines did at Guadalcanal and they spend most of the year or at least a big chunk of the year uh, on R&R in Australia which you might be surprised about but in reality they were in such a bad way When they came out of Guadalcanal, it took a long time not only to build them up again physically, but also to bring in reinforcements and to retrain them for the next campaign, which is New Britain. So we're really on the next stage of the advance uh, up towards the Philippines. New Britain was a much bigger island than Guadalcanal, 370 miles long, with a massive naval base at one edge of it called Rabaul, which uh, the Japanese We're protecting with about 70,000, 80,000 troops. And it was a major sort of naval centre, major Japanese naval base on one side of the island of New Britain. But very sensibly, they decided not to. They were going to go to the far side of the island, Cape Gloucester. uh, And that's on the western side of the island. And they felt that by capturing Cape Gloucester and the airfields there, they could neutralise Rabaul. It was a very sensible decision, actually, because Rabaul was being defended by about 70,000 men. It was a major naval and air base. Uh, And actually capturing Cape Gloucester was going to be a lot easier. Having said all of that, John, uh, the real difficulty about New Britain in general is that it was also jungle terrain. And when they arrived on the on the beaches and then started moving inland into Cape Gloucester that, you know, you're suddenly in a massive jungle at which the visibility is almost impossible. You've got some trees 200 feet high. You've got vines as thick as a, a man's arm. I mean, this is a really brutal terrain with all kinds of insects and jungle creatures and, again, the same kind of illnesses. So,
0: Spiders the size of dinner plates, you write, as well as giant snakes and alligators. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, if, if
1: Guadalcanal was bad, Cape Gloucester was even worse. And once again, they had to face a very tough opponent who was heavily dug in on a series of ridgelines. And the Devil Dog's job, really, was to move forward and knock them off these ridgelines. And in one particular fight, um, really extraordinary battle at which they are approaching this ridge ridgeline. Literally, K Company is given the job of taking the ridge. It's Aeogary Ridge, as it's known, or Bloody Ridge, as it becomes known as. Uh, and it's an amazing fight because the Japanese not only dug in all along the front of that ridge. They also hold the reverse slope and the ridge behind where they're using supporting fire to to uh, attack the, or using supporting fire against K Company. And K Company's advance is slow, gradual, but determined, and, and they finally get to the top of that ridge line and they drag uh, a 37 millimeter anti-tank weapon with them and one of the guys actually helping to drag that 37 millimeter gun is the battalion commander, believe it or not, a man called Walt, who's quite famous in the U.S. Marine Corps. So it's an extraordinary action. And then there are a series of Banzai attacks against the K Company who are holding the ridge and they managed to fight them off. And it, it's one of the le- less well-known actions of the Second World War, but one of the most extraordinary ones, in my view, a lot of medals awarded quite rightly to K Company men as a result of that battle.
0: Yep, so I've got an excerpt from that battle, at least I believe it was that battle. Uh, it, reads, it reads this way. R.V. Bergen was in a foxhole with his buddy Jim Burke when the Japanese attacked. He had made up his mind not to let any enemy soldier get so close he would need to use his bayonet. But in the darkness, rain, and confusion, a shape suddenly appeared at the edge of the foxhole. I was on my knees with my rifle pointed at him, recalled Bergen, and I shoved my bayonet into his chest as hard and deep as I could, right beneath the breastbone. In one motion, I leveraged him off the ground and swung him over my shoulder, pulling the trigger all the way. I don't know how many shots I put into him. Four or five, anyway. Having beaten back the first charge, the Marines could hear the Japanese chattering in the darkness, preparing another attack. It was an agonizing wait in the rain, compounded by groans from the wounded on both sides. Five minutes passed, then maybe another five, before the Japanese launched their second assault with soldiers bent low screaming death. This time their hacking, frenzied charge got within 12 feet of the gun. It was, noted Bordages, hand to hand in the dark, in the pelting rain, man against man, smashing, clawing in the dark, stabbing, clubbing, slipping in the mud, gasping, grunting, dying. Each man alone in the blackness, not knowing what was happening on his right or his left, but holding until he died on the ground where his feet were planted." Eventually, this attack was also repulsed by Marines who died but would not step back. So much of this type of fighting all through these island campaigns, it's just incredible. So much bay- bay- so much bayonet fighting. So many Japanese dug in and fighting at night. So many islands which had been honeycombed with fortifications. It was just dirty, bloody jungle fighting. Rough stuff. Who was uh, Akak Haldane?
1: Well, Akak Haldane first comes into the story in the battles that we've just been talking about uh, John and he's a remarkable man I feel because I don't pull any punches and nor the guys in K Company about some of the officers they didn't admire some of the ones who didn't do as well as they would have liked some of the guys who were hiding never went up to the front line and I'm thinking of one in particular a man called Patterson who was commanding K Company on Guadalcanal but Haldane was a very different kettle of fish he was a guy actually from a blue-collar background who got a a scholarship to go to, uh, first of all, to go to a decent school and then to go on to Bowdoin uh, University. And there he is much admired. I wouldn't say he's the most academic uh, fellow, but very athletic. He was an excellent football player, uh, but he was also much loved by his classmates. Uh, You know, he was a great leader, a great sort of uh, man of moral authority. He knew just the right balance to get respect from his soldiers but also to make them realize he was the commander and, you know, they, they couldn't get away with anything. I wouldn't call him a disciplinarian, but he, he, he basically men wanted to follow his orders because they admired him and they respected him. Um, he'd actually fought with the machine gunners on Guadalcanal and was then posted as the replacement company commander 2k company while they're on R and R in Australia. And so his first battle is, uh, this brutal fight for the, for the ridgeline, in Cape Gloucester and that's the first time he really comes to prominence in terms of uh, his ability in combat. He's awarded the silver star for that action and you can see the reaction of the men to him all the way through. I didn't read a single uh, written account of Haldane that wasn't admiring, that wasn't uh, saying this guy was, you know, in their view, the best company commander in the U S Marine Corps. And obviously there would have been a few other decent ones. So, you know, that that's high compliment.
0: I'm going to back up for just a second to Guadalcanal, but there were some legends fighting with these guys, men like Chesty Puller and John Basilone. There's a little bit about Chesty Puller.
1: Yeah, Chesty Puller is an interesting character, actually, because uh, I think, you know, his, his reputation on Guadalcanal was as a thruster, I suppose you'd call it. This is a man who always drives his troops forward. Um, he was a battalion commander in the first Marines at the start of that campaign, and Uh, there was a little bit of criticism of Puller towards the end of that battle because the 1st Marines takes really heavy casualties in the first two or three weeks of of Guadalcanal, the the most serious casualties of the three Marine regiments that formed the 1st Marine Division. That's the 1st, 5th, and 7th. And Puller, although he was incredibly brave and although he was always up there with his men and led from the front, there's also a certain suspicion that he, he got his men into some, you know, really tough fights. And even after the first Marines had been pulled out of the line because they'd taken so many casualties, Puller was all all for getting them back in there again uh, and, and fighting on. And so I think the reputation of Puller as a fighting commander is deserved. But uh, he was also considered by some to be a man who, you know, probably gave some of his men's, you know, probably cost some of his men's lives because he was so determined that the regiment, the battalion, the regiment uh, would be successful.
0: The men apparently loved him. He was in the Spanish-American War. I think when he was eighteen, he was probably in his forties by the time he reached uh, Guadalcanal. He'd fought in World War One, uh, and was uh, n- very notable in that, if I understand correctly. Then uh, World War Two, and then in Korea, he was just the kind of guy who was just a legendary Marine from Virginia, I believe he was. Yeah, but there was the- a. There, there was a saying. I guess later on, after he, after he died, uh, where the guys were in their tents, they'd say, uh, "Good night, Chesty, wherever you are," in tribute <laughs> to him.
1: Yeah, you also mentioned mentioned Barcelona, and of course, he, he is pretty well known from the from the uh, miniseries, The Pacific. Barcelona wins the Medal of Honor during the Battle of Guadalcanal and, uh, you know, justifiably because he's effectively manning a, a machine gun post almost single handedly in one of the brutal fights. And this was at a time during the Battle of Guadalcanal where the Japanese are still do it, pouring in with these night um, attacks, these banzai attacks, all out attacks. And but for uh, Barcelona's heroics that night, they almost certainly would have broken into the perimeter. So it was a hugely deserves a Medal of Honor. Barcelona had a very tragic end, if we want to go on and talk about that. Um, I John, would. Yes, yes, because he he actually has his opportunity to, you know, he's done his bit and the bit like uh, I mentioned before, Thurman Miller, he gets taken out of the line and sent back to the U.S. Now, he's only been in one campaign, but they realize so powerful is his story that he's going to be very useful. in uh, war, war bonds whipping, yeah. whipping up interest in war bonds. So he, he effectively does a tour of the United States. Uh, encouraging people to buy war bonds but he feels very guilty that he's left his guys and, and he, right. uh, although, he re, although he marries during this period when he's back in the US he de- he's determined to go back into action he joins a different unit and fights uh, on Iwo Jima where he loses his life in the early stages of the combat there and it's a, it's a very tragic story in a way because if it wasn't for his determination to go back uh, you know a bit like Miller he felt guilty but unlike Miller he insists on going back, and of course, he loses his life.
0: Guadalcanal was tough. Japanese lost uh, almost twenty-six thousand ground troops, thirty-five hundred sailors, twelve hundred airmen, and the Americans, seven thousand one hundred good men. That was just Guadalcanal, the beginning of it all. Then, to, then to New Britain. How did how did New Britain end? How many months did it take to complete that campaign? At least for the Marines.
1: Well, the New Britain campaign was also quite a long one, although I think the real key fighting is just in the first two or three weeks. So they land in December 1943 uh, and they're finally pulled off. Uh, they're finally pulled off the island in May 1943. So you think to yourself, well, this is a five or six month campaign. But actually, the heart of the fighting is in the first month. Uh, then they move, they, I, they move up the island in stages. So they're at the far end of Robal's at the east end. They're at the west end. And they're beginning to move a little bit closer to Rabaul. They they eventually take a a peninsula called the Talasia Peninsula again. Devil dogs at the heart of the fighting there. But I would say it's not as it's not as grim a campaign in the sense that it's not. There's not as much jeopardy as there was at at Guadalcanal, even though some of the fighting individually is as is as brutal. And it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't a kind of sustained combat in the same way that Guadalcanal was. Nevertheless, it's a, a very tough fight at which people like uh, uh, Haldane, as you mentioned, and some of the new guys coming in. I mean, RB Bergen, uh, you, you mentioned that quote from uh, the fight on the ridge. He comes in as a young mortarman, uh, is gonna go on and fight with Sledge, of course, because they're in the same mortar section in the, in the following campaign at Peleliu. And Bergen actually uh, carries on the fight all the way through to the end at Okinawa as well. But it's, a, it's about a, a, a five-month campaign, but only maybe six weeks of really, really heavy fighting for K Company.
0: When they wrapped up New Britain, where did the fifth go after that? Well, they were hoping they were going to go back to
1: Australia for obvious reasons, because some of them had girlfriends there, and they were were looking forward to another spell. Soon to be wives. Exactly, and in (laughs) some cases, soon to be wives. Uh, And they were hoping for another spell down in Melbourne. They were pretty rudely... the rude uh, realization uh, as they were heading in ships, and they thought they were going to Australia. Actually, they're taken to this island called Pavavu. Now, Pavavu had been captured a little bit after Guadalcanal. It's a, it's in the same sort of you know uh, ballpark area as Guadalcanal, uh, but it was just a wasteland. I mean, it was ju- it was a, 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 a coconut plantation. It was littered with with rotting coconuts and massive land crabs. And pretty much that was it. There was no infrastructure when uh, when the devil dogs arrived there in the uh, early uh, spring, late spring and early summer of 1944. We we're now in and hold on, let me get this straight. Yeah. In the early uh, in the late spring and early summer of 1944, and uh, it's pretty tough conditions. They're hoping, you know, as I say, to get to Australia. What they've actually got is a place with, you know, with no infrastructure at all there. You know, you've got these just got these rotten tents and these makeshift roads. Now, within a few months, it's it's you know, they, they get it into order and the various construction battalions come in and they and they turn things around there. But it, it was pretty mean, in my view, to have sent them there after the tough fighting on New Britain, uh, because it, there wasn't anything like proper R&R.
0: I'll give you a little aside there. Uh, I record. I often record, uh, especially around Christmas time, old uh, Bob Bob Hope shows that he put on live uh, for the for our troops, often in areas which were <laughs> which were combat, which were combat areas. And he did a show. He did a show from what he called an undisclosed location in the Pacific. They couldn't give it. And as I found out later, it was the island you just mentioned, Pavavu, uh where Bob Hope performed. Did you run across any accounts of that uh, as you were going through the histories?
1: I did. I did. I, it's uh, the the arrival of Bob Hope and his troupe. Uh, you know, there's kind of three or four of them, all all pretty well known performers in the U.S. at that time, and, and Jerry Colonna, uh, they were part- others. Jerry Colonna, exactly, and uh, and they arrive in a light plane. Uh, there's a wonderful kind of uh, image of them coming in to land on Pavavu. I mean, it was they they had to land on one of the roads. There was no airstrip on Pavavu. and it's actually quite a dangerous uh, approach landing in there. They'd come from the neighbouring island, which was a you know a little bit better kitted out. Incredibly brave of, of Hope and his mm-hmm. followers to do that. Uh, of course, they felt that you know these guys are prepared to put their lives uh, at risk. And, and we you know, we, it's the least we can do to keep them entertained. But we know from letters written by some of the servicemen on the island, some of the devil dogs, that they hugely appreciated this. And one mother, actually, of a, of a uh, serviceman of a Marine who's killed in the, in the subsequent fighting on Peleliu, writes to Bob Hope uh, and says, you know, thank you for at least giving my son a little bit of pleasure in, in the last few weeks of his life, because he wrote home and said how wonderful the concert was.
0: As as these four major campaigns continued, one would think that Guadalcanal and New Britain were the worst. But it seems to me, at least from my perspective, from what you give here in Devil Dogs, that it just got harder and harder and harder. Um, and the third was Peleliu.
1: Peleliu, yeah. I, well, and, I mean, John, but you're absolutely right. They did get harder. I think the close, it was a brutal battle. And you also need to, uh, you know, to get your head around how small it was. It was just six miles by two miles so I was talking about New Britain, 370 miles long. Uh, this is now a really tiny little island. Uh, on that island, 11,000 Japanese, as you uh, as you mentioned, John, are in these honeycombed in these in these uh, caves, and they're using a completely different t- tactic of fighting on this island. No more, you know, mad night banzai attacks. They're going to wait for the Americans to come on to them in these very cleverly designed defensive mm-hmm. systems. And as a result, it's very close in hard-fought battle at which the uh, devil dogs uh, among the rest of the U.S. Marine Division take absolutely horrific casualties. Uh, and as a result of all of that, there is a, a a kind of feeling, you know, can it get any worse? But I think, generally speaking, what's going on here, John, is that the closer we're getting towards the Japanese home islands, the harder the Japanese yeah. are fighting.
0: Yeah, the Marines were dying in their foxholes in all those campaigns, but especially in Peleliu, and those guys would... Uh, come out and kill them in their foxholes at night and then sneak back into their tunnels and they, co- they couldn't find them. That was that was some brutal stuff.
1: Yeah, and I think some of the examples of the, uh, you know, which we shouldn't shy away from because it's in uh, uh, Eugene Sledge's book and it's certainly in mine. Some of the examples of of the uh, American Marines really taking out their fury and their frustration on the Japanese. They were, you know, they they did things like there's one officer who, you know, took to peeing in the mouth, you know, urinating in the mouth of corpses. It's hard to, you know, to to speak about these things, John, but it, it, these things happened. They they were hacking off body parts and keeping them. They were certainly keeping a lot of gold teeth. That became very prevalent among a lot of the marine units. And Sledge watches this happening at one point. He's absolutely horrified. But, you know, he, he talks about how his fellow man, how his fellow soldiers are kind of, you know, plumbing the depths of depravity. And I hope they can come back from it. Um. But he absolutely understands yeah. why it's happening. He's, uh, he's not he's not right. condemning people out of hand. He, he, he understands what's what's happening to these young men.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Uh, that's what makes that's what makes Sledge's writing. So uh, it's, it's honest. It's brutally honest. And he, he basically talks about men, you know, leaving this world of sanity as we know it and entering another where there's uh, no holds barred. I think a lot of them have already died spiritually. They're just trying to live from day to day, hour to hour, stay alive, get their job done, get the hell out of there. Uh, and I would imagine it's no surprise, as is any warfare, that when they got home, a lot of them were suffering the effects of what we call today PTSD.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, no, absolutely no question. And What's interesting about that period when they first arrived home is that they're first instinct is they want to forget so actually they don't a lot of them don't go to the uh, veteran reunions and what they discover later on as the years go by is actually this to to go to the veteran reunions and to, to, to kind of decompress and talk to some of the guys who've been through the same things is really good for them um, but it does take many of them a number of years to do that including Eugene Sledge who clearly uh, is in a bad way uh, you know I've spoken to his son actually I never had the good fortune to meet him while he was still alive but I've spoken to his son Henry who I'm doing an event with actually next week in the US and you know Henry tells me it's quite clear that his dad was in a bad way you know recurring nightmares you know black depression uh, and eventually writing with the old was his way of uh, coming to terms with what he'd been through and certainly a lot of the other combat veterans who had survived appreciated uh, Sledge's honesty in that book uh, I can't tell you how number of letters- I can't tell you the number of letters I read, John, uh, in Alabama, in the in the uh, Auburn University archives, saying thank you for telling it how it really was. Thank you for you know telling our story.
0: You have a lot of you have a lot of sledge quotes in the book, and you have you've got a terrific amount of excerpts from from K Company, Third Battalion, Fifth Marines, that are just so well written and so graphic, and so honest. You can't help but get the feeling sometimes when you're reading this that you're there with them. And I think that was, I'm sure that was your objective when you began it. And it certainly that's what you accomplished. It's a, it's a terrific job of putting together all these narratives. When did they get off of Peleliu and when did they go to Okinawa? And Okinawa, the final stretch, seems to me to be uh, the toughest of all.
1: Yeah, in some ways it was. Uh, interesting enough, I'm not yeah. sure uh, Sledge would agree with you. He 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 always said to his dying day, Peleliu was the worst thing he ever experienced. But it was terrible in a different way. It's it's absolutely true, um, John. Uh, they they last. Uh, I say last. They're only on Peleliu for about a month. They're told it's going to only take two or three days to capture the island. It, it takes a month of absolutely brutal fighting in which, almost to a man, the eleven thousand. 11 or 12,000 Japanese defenders are killed. Uh, And when they finally pull out, again, the resistance is pretty much broken. Some army troops come onto the island to mop up the final embers of resistance. But they're, they're pulled out and sent back to Pavavu, by which time Pavavu's slightly improved in terms of its infrastructure. But it's still not the greatest place to be. They still would have preferred to have gone to Australia. But, of course, as they're getting closer to Japan in terms of the advance across the Pacific to take them all the way back to Australia would have, you know, been a logistical effort that, frankly, they didn't consider worthwhile. So they then prepare for this final cataclysmic battle, which starts in April uh, of 1945 and ends in June 1945. We're really just under three-month campaign, and again, an unbelievably brutal struggle because just as uh, they had on Peleliu, uh, a much bigger Japanese garrison of about 100 to 110,000 men are very cleverly uh, dug in in the centre of the island of Okinawa. Okinawa is a bigger island, of course, than Peleliu. It's 70 miles long, but it's nowhere near as big as as some of the other places they've been fighting, in particular New Britain. Uh, And once again, it becomes a really tight uh, uh, and harshly fought battlefield. Japanese, interestingly, have got a lot of artillery on the island of of Okinawa, and it becomes a slugging match. My feeling, for what it's worth, uh, John, is that if the... Army commander on Okinawa had been a bit more imaginative, and that is the U.S. Army commander, uh, a man called Simon Bolivar Buckner. Uh, They should uh, probably should have landed uh, behind the the Japanese defensive system, and that and that may have uh, reduced the number of casualties. But but they didn't do that. Well, they they initially landed in the center of the island and then started advancing to the south. So what they really needed to do is land even further south than the main Japanese defensive system uh, and come at them from two angles. And the Japanese themselves were terrified that was going to happen. We know that because there's a wonderful source, uh, a man called Colonel Yahara, who very unusually for senior Japanese commanders, he was the chief of operations on the island, survives the battle, goes back to Japan where he's... uh, considered to be a pariah, by the way, John, because uh, it, it was considered dishonorable to survive a, a defeat. Uh, but what is very useful for historians is that he writes a wonderful account of the Battle of, of Okinawa, a very honest account. Uh, and he, he makes quite clear in that, that one of their big fears is that the uh, Americans were gonna land south of the main defensive system.
0: In chapter 50, The End Game, Keon Peninsula, 18 through 30 of June, 1945, the endgame describes it well how do you describe what happened to the what happened in Okinawa as the Japanese finally realized that their their ground forces there were defeated the indigenous peoples of Okinawa were afraid for their lives what happened there at the end
1: Well it's a terrible story uh, Okinawa because unlike a lot of the islands we 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 we've been discussing uh, who either had a very small uh, civilian population or none at all Okinawa had a massive civilian population of uh, about three hundred and seventy five thousand. I think when the battle began and uh, a big chunk of that are going to lose their lives. And the reason they lose their lives is because the heartless Japanese who I mean, the Okinawans were slightly different ethnic makeup to the homeland. Japanese, they were all part of the same political system. And so in technically they were Japanese, but they were very different ethnic makeup, as I say. And the Japanese really treated them as second class citizens and uh, were not going to allow the civilians to be taken prisoner by well taken prisoners by to be herded by the americans into camps uh, they'd set up these camps really to keep the uh, civilian population alive and the americans did very well on the island when they were able to but the japanese ruthlessly took the civilian population with them right down to the southern tip of the island where there was going to be a last stand and of course uh, as a result, a lot of them get killed by friendly fire, but even more of them get killed by the Japanese themselves, or they get encouraged to commit suicide. Uh, uh, you know, it's hard to believe, it's hard to get your head around in 2022 that you would have done that, but they'd they'd brainwashed the civilian population into thinking the Americans were going to rape and murder them, uh, which simply was not the case. Uh, and as a result, they were prepared to effectively follow orders and and kill themselves. And so you get 125,000 uh, Okinawan civilians perish in this battle, it's it's uh, it's hard to get your head around.
0: That's amazing. There was a scene in the book here where a father had strangled his uh, children as the Americans got close because he had been brainwashed to believe that the Americans were going to butcher his family. And when the Americans came, his dead children lay all around him and he watched as the as the other children gathered around the Marines as they gave away candy. Uh, and this this old man was just crying, knowing what he had done. Unbelievable! Uh, some unbelievable scenes. And uh, there were the Japanese had had forced uh, two thousand Okinawan schoolboys, ages fourteen to eighteen, into that last desperate fight as well. I mean, just
1: yeah, they had little sympathy, frankly, for the civilian population, as I've explained, uh, John. It wasn't just uh, uh, it wasn't just Okinawan schoolboys. Actually, the schoolgirls were also recruited okay. and put into nursing corps. Many of them died. I went round a museum in Okinawa while I was researching the book and all the way around the room I was in were the pictures, these beautiful pictures of these 14 to 18 year old Okinawan girls who died in the fighting.
0: Okay, at least I've got got some fun questions for you, so we'll lighten it up a little bit. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, the biggest surprise to you when you were researching this book, what was the biggest surprise if you did have one?
1: Um, uh, well, be the first broadest surprise for me was the quality of the material out there. You, you, you know, the problem with writing uh, books, particularly as a historian, as opposed to a novelist, is that you're never quite sure the quality of the material you're going to get. I knew that there were a certain number of, of, of high quality memoirs, and we've discussed a lot of them, but I hadn't read them all. Uh, I hadn't read them all in detail. And as I began to piece the story together, what you're really looking for is a balance, but you're also looking for quality. You mentioned that there are a lot of first-hand uh, accounts, a lot of first-hand quotations in the book. Well, there wouldn't have been so many, John, if mm-hmm. the quality wasn't so good. Uh, and that that's really the point. What I'm looking to do is is allow people who were there to tell in their own words what it was really like. But many, many memoirs, many first-hand accounts are, are not that well-written, they're not that graphic, and, and therefore it would be pointless to quote from them. So that was the first big surprise, the sheer quality. And I think that's partly down to obviously the personalities of the people writing but it's also down to the experience you know if you go through a pretty mundane war there's not a lot to write about but if you go through the pacific war uh in all its horror and some of its humor uh, you know there are some light-hearted moments in the book maybe not enough but uh, when they're in australia and you know some funny moments when there they're, were. When they're yep. down in australia um but it, it if if the quality of the writing hadn't been as good as it was, there would have been more prose from me and less from the guys involved. And in my view, the book would have been the poorer for it because I wasn't there. And I love to be able to put the readership, as you pointed out before, John, uh, almost as if they're, you know, on the shoulders of the guys who are actually fighting uh, with them in the foxholes. That, that's the plan. It doesn't always work, but it was a lot easier in, in this particular case because of the Variety and quality of the first hand accounts so that was a that was a big surprise to me. I think the other surprise, if there was one, is how badly affected everyone was i shouldn't uh, you know it, it's, it's, it's it's a mystery to me really now looking back why I was so surprised, but maybe I didn't know the sheer depths uh, of horror that they'd experienced, but it's really heartrending actually to read a lot of the accounts of the guys who who got through it. And, you know, I mentioned before the survivors guilt, but also the sheer sort of, you know, the the, the way that they found it so difficult to adapt to civil society after what they've been through. You know, Sledge talks about, you know, all we'd been all we were is trained killers. And it was really hard to come back to civilian life with all the sort of mundane uh, day to day tasks you're expected to do and getting a job and paying a mortgage and having a family um, and squaring that with what they had been through. So I was. I was surprised, uh, but also I think in some ways it makes the end of the book quite powerful because um, the lasting effect of this campaign is not just uh, in the experience of families who, people who've lost their lives, who've been wounded. There are the mental wounds as well. And again, I think that's a very important lesson to remember from combat. People need to be taken care of, even if they come back with, you know, with their bodies intact.
0: Okay, you're in your office. The phone rings and it's Tom Hanks. And he says, Saul, we're looking at doing a series on you, on the, on your book, and we're going to make you associate producer. What scene would you start this movie with?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny you ask that because, uh, you know, in my wildest dreams, uh, <laughs> John, <laughs> uh, I hope that call will come one day. And, um, I think I, I, I my choice would would still be to start it with that dramatic scene that I start the book with, which you opened this conversation with uh, that that because of course there's a there's a preamble to that scene, which is you know, how do they get there and what's the decision to go to Guadalcanal, and anyway, where do these guys come from? So I suspect probably in reality the the miniseries if there ever was one based on the book and by the way one of the reasons i wrote the book is i didn't mention this at the beginning is is because i'd seen the pacific uh, and it was wonderful the pacific and of course it's got some of the characters in the pacific from the book in the pacific including sledge but what it didn't have is a narrative coherency all the way through uh, and that's what i've tried to do with this book and the reason it didn't have that is because there wasn't a band of brothers book for the pacific That had been written at that time that tom hanks and steven spielberg were able to use but i would still hope to start with that scene because i think it's it's really poignant the relationship between the the uh, platoon commander and his guys and that discussion about listen if anyone of you don't want to do this you know just that's fine you just put up your hands you can stay in the ship and, and maybe come on shore after we've landed and and, and there's that great moment where, of course, as you hope would be the case, they say, well, we're all with you. So, yeah, I would try and start it with that with that scene. But knowing drama a little bit, as I do, I, I think they might they, they'll probably go for, I don't know, someone's reaction to Pearl Harbor or a, a little bit earlier on in the story, frankly, before they even join the Marine Corps.
0: In the in the series, The Pacific, was that HBO or was that somebody else?
1: It was HBO. HBO.
0: Did you see that? And what did you think that was pretty accurate?
1: Yeah, I did see it and it was accurate and it was also incredibly um, uh, uh, it was incredibly evocative of the Pacific War. I mean, the cinematography was beautiful. Mm -hmm. They spent a lot of money on it. I mean, unlike Band of Brothers and they didn't realize how successful that was going to be. That was also an HBO series. The Pacific, really, they, they I think it's one of the most expensive bits of TV, probably until Game of Thrones that had ever been made. And it looked beautiful, but it lacked uh, narrative coherency because they didn't have a single unit they could follow. And therefore, you had Barcelona, you had a lot of the other famous people from the Pacific. uh, And they were they were knitting together these disparate stories uh, from different even different divisions. Yeah, you're right. It was
0: powerful, but you didn't stay with the same unit. You didn't get to really know the people. You were just looking at vignettes, basically.
1: Exactly, exactly. They did as well as they could, frankly, with the material they had available. But, but it could have been better, uh, and, and it would have been better if they'd had a single book. I think um, they need you to know. go with your
0: K company. I think you ought to make a few trips to Hollywood and get this done. Okay?
1: <laughs> Thanks, John. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I know that the feelers are being put out. But part of the problem, I, I suspect, with, with uh, you know Hollywood and, and uh, big-time producers, and you know, by the way, Hanks is a great admirer of Sledge, as I'm sure mm-hmm. – yeah. And, I, you know, if, if, if there was an opportunity, frankly, today for uh, Tom Hanks to revisit the Pacific, it would be a wonderful thing. And I know that he's a great admirer of Eugene Sledge. He's gone on the record of saying that. Uh, but I think the issue, of course, with Hollywood is that once you've done a big mini series on the Pacific, uh, is there a chance they'll go back? I don't know. We're, we'll wait and see. I mean, interesting enough, the the follow up, the latest Tom Hanks thing, Masters of the Air, which apparently is about to be shown on Apple Uh, streaming TV is the kind of next in the series. It's the Band of Brothers set in the air. But given that the Pacific was never done as satisfactorily as it it could have been, maybe they'll they'll think about revisiting
0: it one day. Uh, Saul, you've done a number of books, uh, among which you've got Thunderbolt, Crucible of Hell. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, Crucible of Hell was the story of, of of the Okinawan campaign. So it's one of the reasons I got onto, uh, onto the Marines. Uh, Operation Thunderbolt was, was uh, you know, very different in many ways. It's not a Second World War story. It's the story of the rescue of the hostages at Entebbe. Uh, that is the anti-terrorist rescue by uh, Israeli special forces in the 1970s. I've also written a book called The Force, actually, which might be of interest to some of your listeners, because The Force... Is otherwise known as the First Special Service Force, which was the forerunner of the Green Berets. The Black Devils, and that was set up. Fascinating, exactly, and that was fascinating because it was set up as a joint American-Canadian force. First time they've ever had this kind of joint, uh, uh, joint-commanded American-Canadian uh, force uh, trained to exceptionally high standards and used for this amazing mission, which the book really centres on. Uh, another, another potential film, I might add, John. That, uh, I saw that I saw the
0: '60s movie. And uh, exactly. it was done fairly well. A lot of the guys yeah. were complaining that, they, hey, we're, we were not the um, the dirty dozen here. We weren't a bunch of uh, misfits that they pulled out of prison to accomplish this. And they were a little bit mad about it. But uh, some of the action scenes were well done. And I thought they stick pretty much to the real story. Or stuck. Yeah, you've I got thought a, they stuck pretty much to the real story.
1: Yeah, you've got a very good memory, John. That's exactly right. William Holden, I think. Was, yeah, was William Holden. In that film. And it was a very good film. Um, the capture of that mountain was a remarkable uh, 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 military achievement. It took place in a campaign that's not that well known. That Italian campaign get, tends to get overshadowed by D-Day and and Arnhem and some of the that's, you know the, the operation, uh, you know the Market big airdrops. Marking bridge exactly. too far. That was a good
0: movie too, by the way.
1: The bridge too far. The longest day. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You see the things that get turned into into successful films, although the uh the story of the first special service force was a good film it was never it was never that memorable a film I, you know you you don't come across that many people who, who who remember it but it's a remarkable story and uh you know i i had the great privilege actually of interviewing the, one of the last members of the first special service force uh lives in canada um i, I think he was 96 when i interviewed him uh and you know it, it wonderful to hear the story uh from the horse's mouth so to speak of, one of the last guys who actually climbed up the mountain. Uh, they
0: trained him in Montana. Yeah,
1: yeah, they did. And they picked Montana because they were able to, you know, uh, do the parachuting, the mountain warfare. I mean, they could do everything. They could ski. Uh, they had this sort of multi skills that, you know, I, I can only imagine today would be the equivalent of our SAS or SBS over here. You know, obviously, Delta maybe and. And seals in in the U.S. I mean, really extraordinary military capability. Yeah, as I understand it, before uh, they got they their had.
0: uniforms issued, they had some cultural differences. Some of the uh, some of the Canadians were wearing kilts, and they weren't the And they weren't at the, weren't at the same pay level that their American counterparts no, were. They
1: came in. Uh, they, they, they the the, <laughs> the Canadians were paid every two weeks, and the and the Americans were only paid uh, once a month. And this. This is a cause of a lot of friction, of course, because you used to run through your money. And and the question is, you know, who was going to get paid when? And a lot of fistfights, as you can imagine. They all came in wearing their own own uniforms. And a lot of the Canadians had been members of these Highland regiments. So some of them had kilts on and glengarrys, as you say, John.
0: Well, Saul, thank you for your interview today. Thank you for sharing your book with us. Devil Dogs, King Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines from Guadalcanal to the shores of Japan. Look him up, Saul David. He's on Amazon, anywhere great books are sold. Wonderful, wonderful book. And I highly recommend this for all our listeners, Devil Dogs. You'll know more about the Marines and more about the Pacific campaign against the Japanese, 1942 through 1945, than you're going to learn anywhere else. And this is from the men who fought it. A wonderful job of putting all this together. Thank you.
1: Thanks, John. I really appreciate it.
0: Is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to add at this point? No, I don't think so. That's 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 about as comprehensive an interview as
1: I've done on this so far, John. So okay. uh, congratulations to you on on your homework. I mean, that's pretty pretty amazing. Uh, the level of detail you got into, and also it's really nice to hear some of the extracts read out. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 I know it takes up a bit of time, but it, it really brings the flavor of the book. So uh, thank you for that. Oh, you're
0: very welcome. Okay, and I understand you're going to you're coming over to the states here pretty soon. You're doing. Uh... Yeah, well, I'm going to be at the National World War II uh,
1: Museum uh, giving a talk in, in New Orleans, uh, in Louisiana. New Orleans. Uh, Don't party too hard down no, there. No, I'm trying not to. <laughs> Next Friday. Um, uh, that's a week to a week today. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. That 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 should be a lot of fun.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you all the way. Appreciate it. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: Cheers. Bye bye.